I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and as we continue in Romans, and you have uh, the notes in your worship folder, so I invite you to take those out as we get into God's Word. I don't need to tell you that we live in a pretty messed up world, Um, and you know there are a lot of answers out there that the world has, uh, more education, uh, more money, uh, government usually has an, or thinks they have an answer, uh, religion even. It was, it was Fyodor Dostoevsky who said, reminded us in his famous book, The Brothers Karamazov, that if God does not exist, everything is permissible. And unfortunately, we're seeing everything today. Uh, it's not good to get used to that. You know, we've removed God from so many parts of society. And I don't think the outcome has been very good. Uh, Interestingly, the famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, said he fears the removal of religion would be a bad idea for society because it would give people, as he says, the license to do really bad things. Uh, He likened the importance of a higher power Uh, informing our morality to the presence of uh, surveillance cameras that supposedly help prevent shoplifting. And uh, his students at Oxford did an interesting experiment. They um, allowed students to pay for hot drinks via an honesty box, they called it. They had the prices of the coffees up and they decorated them in two ways, one with flowers around them, And then that was for one week. The following week, they decorated it with two giant seeing eyes. And um, they said that at the end of this uh, experiment, that people, the students paid nearly three times what they paid with the flowers when they had the seeing eyes up there. Uh, They paid a lot for the coffee because of those seeing eyes. And Dawkins concludes this. He says, it does seem plausible that if somebody sincerely believes God is watching their every move, that they might be more likely to be good and to do good. Last week, we said that God's righteous response to our sin is his wrath, a holy wrath. And, And this is on your outlines at the top of the outline. We know that our sin hurts people. But the real problem is the way our sin offends God. If the world were, you know, you can just look out the windows. If the world were this, and it is, this giant, magnificent art gallery that we can all look into and and see, and if it was all done by the same artist for our enjoyment, when you looked at the richness and the beauty and the creativity and the greatness of creation, what would you say about the creator? It's not like we miss God for a shortage of evidence. The problem is our fallen sinfulness. That's what it says in in Romans. That's what it teaches throughout Romans. We are not morally neutral and trying to find God. We love our sin because we love ourselves. And we justify our love for sin by suppressing the reality of God. God's wrath is towards sinners uh, because every sin really, think, think about it, is a denial of who God is. 
We also saw last week in verses 21 and 23 of, of chapter 1 that the result of, of the suppression of truth is a terrible decline into darkness. We maybe think that primitive people bowing down before idols, carved idols, is something that we just can't even identify. But again, last week we mentioned, and this is on your outline, that we have our own modern Western idols, namely money, sex, and power. And we're all made to worship something, but we've turned away from the one true God and looked elsewhere uh, for things to worship. Actually, we can turn about anything into an idol. We can turn good things into idols. Uh, we, we said last week and talked about that good things like even our spouse, our family, uh, other relationships, even our church. You can make church an idol. To really bad things like pornography or alcohol or drugs. It was John Calvin, the great reformer, who said that the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is from their mother's womb expert in inventing idols, John Calvin wrote. Every idol is giving things that are created the place that only God, the creator, deserves to have in our lives. And this is why the world is under God's wrath. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, a quote that you have on the outline, that the wrath of God is just his love. His love for good, his hatred of evil, burning like a fire. So when you ask what's wrong with the world, make sure you don't overlook what's easiest to overlook when we look at how bad the world is, and that is yourself. So let's read our passage, Romans 1. Beginning, I'm going to back up a little bit into what we looked at last week, but I'll begin at verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. That's God's word. 
Uh, Kent Hughes, who has preached here before and uh, who is uh, my pastoral mentor, uh, decided to write this passage out in the positive to hear what it would sound like. And you can follow along in your Bible, but I want to read what Kent wrote as he put this same passage in a positive way. Uh, Starting at verse 25, therefore God gave them over in their hearts to self-control and purity that their bodies might be honored among them. For they kept and cherished the truth of God and worshiped and served the creator who is blessed forever rather than the creature. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to pure and wholesome lives, lived with carefree ease, even in the most intimate relations so that all received in their own persons the due reward of their fidelity. And just as they saw fit to acknowledge God in all things, God gave them over to a sound mind to do those things which are proper, being filled with all righteousness, goodness, generosity, kindness, full of selflessness, life, healing, openness, kindliness. They are gentle in speech, always building others up, lovers of God. Respectful, humble, self-effacing, inventors of good, obedient to parents, understanding, trustworthy, loving, merciful, and as they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are possessors of life, they do the same and give hearty approval to those who do likewise. So keep that in mind as we dig through these verses because uh, the verses that we're looking at are kind of a dark journey. Uh, They might be uncomfortable to read the passage we read from from God's word, but the truth they give is as much needed today as at any other time in our history. Dr. Richard Halverson was the former uh, uh, chaplain of the United States Senate. Uh, Before that, he was the pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in the Washington, D.C. area. And he described teaching a Bible study through Romans chapter one. And he said there was a a medical doctor who he described as being brilliant, who was in the Bible study, but he had never been in a Bible study before. And afterwards he said to Dr. Halverson, I've never read the Bible before, but tonight I saw myself clearly in Romans chapter one. So now what do I do about it? Well, we're going to answer that question for us this morning. Um, As we grasp mankind's depravity, uh, my prayer is that we'll be more effective in living our life for Jesus in a fallen world, and that we'll be more effective in sharing our faith with other people. Um, So before we go on further, I want to define total depravity, and you have it on your outline. Uh, Total depravity holds that as a result of the fall of man, all humans are born sinful and are unable to choose to follow God or do good without the help of God's grace. So the total in total depravity means that every part of our lives is imperfect. Our our mind, our emotions, our desires are all biased against God. Only the Holy Spirit can change us and transform us into the image of Christ, who himself is the image of the invisible God. 
You know, there are so many verses that explain this important doctrine for us to understand of total depravity. And I want to just give you a few. They're actually on the outline. I do hope that you'll take some time to look them up uh, because, and underline them in your Bible because the truths that come out of them are, are very important. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. We're born dead in transgression and sin. We're held captive by a love for sin. We will not seek God apart from his work to draw us to himself. Uh, Because of our total depravity, unbelievers, as unbelievers, we reject the gospel of Christ as foolishness. And Paul summarizes this doctrine in Romans 3 that we'll get to um, at some point. So, you know, a parent doesn't have to ever teach their child to be selfish. Um, Those actions come naturally, don't they? Uh, That's part of a child's nature. I'll I'll give you some evidence of total depravity. Uh, It's it's the 10 property laws of toddlers. Um, They may apply to adults as well, uh, just maybe in a more sophisticated way. The first law is if I like it, it's mine. Uh, Second, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Number three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing and building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. And if you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. And if it's broken, it's yours. So you know that, maybe that comes through for us when when our prayers are so self-centered. I talked to someone last week that said that they were mad at God because God wasn't answering their prayers. They're mad at God because God wasn't answering their prayers the way this person wanted them answered in his world. But it was obviously not God's will to respond uh, to his prayers, or maybe he did answer, and I I know he answered, but, but said no. So what we have in verses 24 to, 20, uh, 24 to 32 are the dimensions of depravity uh, to which unbelieving men and women, that's all of us at one point, go through in working out God's wrath on themselves. So there are three aspects to man's fallenness that we see in this passage. The first one is the physical dimension in verses 26 and 27. Um, Really, you can look back at verses 24 and 25, right before that, what we talked about last week. Uh, because the question is, how does God choose to punish the suppression of truth? He could bring down fire from heaven. That's what he could do. Uh, instead, he gives us what we want. He gives us over to destructive sins, things we want and things we love, apart from him. And so in verse 26, it says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. That's a language of the Old Testament, God gave them over, that we see. Like, for example, when Israel would worship the idols of the surrounding nation, God's judgment meant that he would allow them to be enslaved and to be oppressed by the foreign gods that they were loving. Gave them what they wanted. We find in our hearts a love for ourselves and a love for sin, 
And that results in more destruction. That results in the wrath of God. So some of the hardest things that Paul says are in verses 26 and 27. He writes this, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. You know, I, it's been a few years, but I've, I, I did a series on, on homosexuality and what the Bible says. Uh, at that time, I encouraged a book to be read by all of you, as I know a number of you bought it and have read it, um, but I want to recommend it again to anybody who didn't. It's on the outline. It's called Love Into Light by Peter Hubbard. It's compassionate, but it's very, um, it, it works through all, all the kind of the difficult passages and answers them well. There's also another good book by Rosario Butterfield uh, called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert that I uh, read just a few months ago. Uh, she was a, a radical gay college professor at Syracuse University, and uh, she definitely came in with an agenda in teaching. Uh, she was living with a, a gay partner, and she comes to faith in Christ, and it is a powerful testimony. I would encourage all of you to read it. She wrote another book that I know many of you have read called The Gospel Comes with a House Key that is a tremendous book as well. Um, but So with only a few minutes to talk about that this morning, I just want to make a few points. And uh, first of all, God's word can't be any clearer. It's, we read it right there. Uh, but the first kind of comment here is that uh, it's on the outline, homosexuality is against God's natural design. Uh, in the end, this is not so much about homosexuality, really, or even sexuality in general, as much as it is about surrendering our lives to Christ and finding our identity in him, not in our sexuality. When we realize the truth of who we are in Christ, that we are in Christ, that we have the privilege of talking with God through prayer, that we have the privilege of reading his word, what he says to us. When we understand that, that our, we, we know that our identity is first and foremost as a child of God, not who we are sexually. And so maybe the key question that we all need to ask ourselves is this, are we willing, are you willing to surrender completely to Christ. He's the God who created you. If you disagree with God and what his word says, remember that he is your creator. And so the question is, are you willing to submit to whatever he says? And this is what he says. Sometimes following Jesus means not doing what we would really like to do. And the second point is this, that the root problem is idolatry. It's not homosexuality or any other sin, sexual sin or otherwise. And the deep disorder we have is our failure to worship God and to obey God. And so the first order of business, so to speak, is not to repair our sexuality the first order of business is to worship God the way he deserves to be worshiped. 
And then the third point that you've got under number one is that one man and one woman in a covenant relationship in marriage is created by God to be a picture to the world of the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. So it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't just an example he pulled out of the air when the apostle Paul said, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So God is wholly different from us and yet God invites us as humans, the ones he made into a covenant relationship with him. He loved the church by sending Jesus to die for the church. Husbands, that's how you're supposed to love your wives. You're supposed to be willing to die for them. You protect them. And then after number one, the physical dimension of man's fallenness, we have the the mental dimension. Uh, Look at verse 28. uh, uh, Furthermore, just as they did not think, so it's talking about the minds, it's worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So from the catalog of sins that we have in verses 29 to 31, that catalog we read, it's clear that God's handing people over to their sin. It's not limited to sexual disorders. But it seeps into every area of our life, into our relationships, into our words, into our hearts, into our actions. So this isn't a description of individuals so much as it is the character, the, the, a characterization of fallen humanity of which we're a part. And no one can escape this. That's the point. Well, we're all subject to it. So we hear this list and we think, man, I'm not, that's not me. I'm not a murderer. I'm not ruthless. Okay, but have you ever envied? Have you ever slandered someone, said something bad about them? Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Have you ever been boastful? All of these things, these are all evils that bring the wrath of God on our heads. And what's interesting to see here is that that Paul has the worst sins next to ones that we might think are not that bad. Murderers are right next to those who are slanderers. God-haters are right there next to those who disobey their parents. Uh, The inventors of evil are right there with the envious. And I think the people in the world think that if we can just keep to the smaller sins, the ones that are less important, then God will overlook those. But that's not what his word says. Look at the end of verse 32. Those who do such things deserve death. That's what we deserve. And so the world suppresses the truth. And, And so what's the takeaway here? It's not a to-do list. It's not an action plan. No, we need to see that we belong to a world that has gone terribly wrong. And that we have defiantly turned our backs on God, who's our creator, and that we are now under his just and righteous condemnation. And that's why we need Jesus. That's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus came for us. And then the physical dimension, the mental dimension, number two, and then of of man's fallenness, and then number three is the ultimate dimension in verse 32. And this is almost a summary statement, but it's an added dimension at the same time. Uh, And he says this, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, 
they not only continue to do these things, these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You know, in part of our tour that we went with on, uh, to the, in the steps of the Apostle Paul with about 35 people from here to Turkey and Greece and Rome, we visited the Roman Colosseum. And in the Roman Colosseum, uh, there were hundreds and thousands of people who died, who were murdered, and thousands of Christians. And people, it was like a sport that people would pay to go and see these people murdered. That's why people went, to see people ruthlessly be killed. And Paul is saying that those who are watching, those who paid to get in and watch and applaud are just as bad as those doing it, if not worse. As Christians, we're not exempt from this when we watch television. Satan knows if he can get us to laugh at things that we believe we'll never do, uh, that our defenses will fall. Did you know that the average American child, if they watch TV like an average American child, by the time they're 18, they will see on television 200,000 acts of violence. And I think it was interesting uh, to, to read that 80% of Hollywood executives, 80%, feel there's a link between television violence and real-life violence. Like what happened, I don't know if it was this morning or last night up in LA, another 10 people died in a mass murder. You know, if you want to read a powerful book on this, um, there's a book, it's on the outline called Amusing Ourselves to Death uh, by Neil Postman. He has a lot of insightful things to say. One of them was spiritual devastation is more likely to come from an enemy with a smiling face. And so on your outline, we need to be careful what we watch and what we applaud. And what's scary is that it seems that no one has ever been able to say this far and no further. It just keeps getting worse. In the first century, people were in the darkness of despair. Idolatry was everywhere. People had turned away from the true God. And that's when the angels announced the birth of Jesus. That's our hope. That's the good news. And so understanding the bad news helps us long for the good news. And the good news comes, Paul says it again in Ephesians 2. Uh, he writes, uh, all of us lived among them at once, at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. There he says it. The, the journey from the death valley that we are in to the spiritual heights of life is accomplished only by the resurrection. And so that's what Paul writes about in Ephesians 2. And he says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Because of the resurrection. And to make alive, it, it, that's what it's synonymous with, to raise from the dead. In other words, we are radically dead spiritually speaking, and we can only be saved because of the radicalness of the resurrection. The gospel begins by 
exposing our desperate need for God. We are desperate for God. We need him. And what's the answer to our messed up world? Well, it's, it's like the, uh, the, that MD who was in that Bible study by Dr. Halverson. What do I need to do? Well, what you need to do is repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. That's what the scripture says. Jesus gives us this amazing invitation in Matthew 11, and he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest for your soul, he says. And Jesus is speaking here to to those in in Matthew 11, to those who are trying to find God by being good and were finding it impossible to do so. And it led them to, to weariness and despair. And that's where this passage leads us. It leads us to the good news of Jesus because we, be, we begin to see our desperate need for God. And it's all humanity that's there. It's every Jew and every Gentile, every person who's moral and every person who's immoral and every person who's religious and every person who's irreligious. All of those things are, we, we all stand utterly condemned before God. And all distinctions are wiped out, sex, Race, culture, language, wealth, whatever it is, it's, it's class, it's all wiped out there. We are all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the gospel is for sinners. The church is for sinners. You know, this church isn't a place for people who have all their lives all together. No, this is a place where people can come and be honest, maybe even brutally honest, about their sinfulness because that's what the gospel is for. It's for all of us. And I believe we have, and I'm praying that we will continue to maintain a culture of grace here where, we can, where sinners can come and, and, and talk and confess their sin and, and be encouraged by other sinners. And I, I believe in the truth of the gospel John 1.12, Jesus says, but to all who believed and accepted him, John writes, he gave the right to become the children of God. And so what, what, what we can do about it is what we see in ourselves. It was Augustine uh, who, who wrote, the son of God became a son of man so that we might become the sons and daughters of God. So are you a son of God? Are you a daughter of God? Man, the invitation is there and it's clear. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are as our creator God. We know, Lord, that we have offended you and your holiness and denied you by our sin. At the same time, Lord, thank you for the hope we have in Jesus. We want our lives to be characterized by being lovers of God and respectful and humble and trustworthy and loving. Lord, we, we want to find our identity in you and not in our sexuality. Help us be willing to submit to you when we disagree because we're the created ones. And forgive us, Lord, for turning our backs on you when we sin. Thank you for the salvation that we have by grace through faith. If there's anyone here who's not received that, Lord, may they just respond in faith right now.
We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is at the end of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes, Now to him who is able to strengthen you in the faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Amen. So be it. Uh, God bless you. Please greet the people that you're near as well as you before you leave.